Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 27th, 2017, and my guest is Dennis Rasmussen. He is a professor of political science at Tufts University, and his latest book, which is our subject for today's conversation, is The Infidel and the Professor, David Hume, Adam Smith, and the Friendship that Shaped Modern Thought. Dennis, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. Your book is about Hume and Smith, their ideas, their friendship. It's also about their place of origin and where they spent most of their time, most of their lives, 18th century Scotland. You write, how did a nation that began the 18th century as a poor, backward outpost on the fringe of Europe manage to become such an intellectual powerhouse by the middle of the century? Give us a quick answer to that question because it it's an extraordinary thing. Sure, it is. The, the Scottish Enlightenment, as we now call it, is really one of the intellectual golden ages in, in the, the history of thought. Um, so when Hume and Smith are growing up, Scotland in the early 18th century is synonymous with poverty and barbarism and a sort of uh, dour, repressive form of Presbyterianism. Um, but during their lifetime, the, the, there's a, a vibrant new age of economic prosperity, cultural achievement that everybody notices. People in Scotland, people elsewhere uh, notices how, how much the country has changed um, to the point where that there's now even a recent fairly best, I think it was a best-selling book called How the Scots Invented the Modern World, which I think is maybe an overstatement, but it's amazing the number of great thinkers and ideas that came out of this period. So how did this happen? Uh, as always with a big cultural, social change like this. I'm sure there are lots of factors involved. Um, I'll just go through a few of them. So one was the innovative system of parish schools that had made Scotland the most literate society in Europe, maybe in the world by that time. Um, the educational system also extended to the universities, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, to some degree St. Andrews, uh, grew to be some of the very best uh, universities in Europe, lots of reforms within the universities enable that. There are lots of clubs and debating societies, many of which Human Smith were members of, uh, really a thriving pub publishing industry. Two of the biggest changes, I think, had to do in uh, the church and in politics. So in the church, um, there's still lots of conflict within the church, the, the Church of Scotland, the Kirk, um, over the course of the 18th century. But as the century wore on, there's a number of moderate ministers, many of whom were good friends with Human Smith, um, came to kind of take control of the, the Kirk and, and made it much more kind of tolerant, much more uh, attuned to the, the advances in the polite, enlightened world that, that Human Smith were helping to bring into being. Um, also, the, the political climate, I think we can't ignore the Union of 1707 that created Great Britain. So the, the Union, uh, which is being reconsidered in, in, by, by the Scots recently, um, led to great, it took a little while, it took a couple decades, but it led to a, a, an economic boom that gave Scots greater um, personal freedoms and opportunities. Uh, Human Smith in particular embraced it with open arms. And so the, there are lots of these changes that are going on that made something like this possible. And who are some of the, the other figures in, in Human Smith's circle? Uh, many of them you write about in the book, 
there many of them are obscure to us today. Uh, people like Joseph Black, but or Adam Ferguson, which some of our listeners may have heard of, because I like to quote uh, one of his lines now and then right. about things being um, the product of human action, but not human design. Um, who are some of the other folks in, in, in their their fields? Sure. So a number of them will be better known in philosophy circles than in uh, maybe economic circles. Um, Thomas Reed is a famous common sense philosopher, as he's often known today. Um, William Robertson was a great historian. There are a number of other philosophers, Francis Hutchison, who was Smith's teacher, uh, a guy named Henry Holm, who became Lord Kames, Hugh Blair. So a number of these are are moderate ministers within the the Kirk. Um, the, The the, there are also a number of figures outside of what we would think of as kind of the philosophy history. Um, James Hutton was the founder of modern geology, many would say. Um, James Watt, who of course it became famous with the, the steam engine. Uh, so there are a number of, uh, of figures. Human Smith are, of course, the, the, leading, the leading lights. Of course, some of it's just random um, that these people, they, they weren't average people who were simply in a great environment they were extraordinary people who were in a great environment and that combination created the uh, explosion of creativity and and contributions that that we're talking about you can think about other times in human history and other places i guess you need both but um it's clear that that this happened there it was it's pretty amazing Mm -hmm. most of our listeners including myself uh, know a lot more about Smith than we know about Hume, and I'm ashamed to say that I've read very little Hume, uh, even though I took a lot of a reasonable amount of philosophy in college, uh, maybe four to five, maybe six courses in philosophy, and yet I had not. I don't remember. I'm sure I read some Hume, but I don't remember. I have a book of Hume's that I think comes from that time, but I couldn't have told you much about him. Uh, why is Hume important? in the history of ideas, history of thought, and what's his relevance for us today? So Hume is, I think, widely seen as quite simply the greatest philosopher ever to write in English, maybe second to Thomas Hobbes, depending on who who you ask. Um, He's widely known as both an empiricist and a skeptic, so he's standardly seen by philosophers as the third in the trio of great uh, British empiricists, Locke, Barclay, Hume, so this is John Locke, George Barclay, and then Hume. Um, He's also widely seen as part of the skeptical tradition that starts in the ancient world, goes through moderns like Michel de Montaigne and Pierre Bale. Um, so he kind of straddles the empiricist skeptical line. Um, he's one of the great, greatest, I think, philosophical critics of religion, and yet also one of the greatest philosophical critics of reason at, at the same time. So he's a, quite a provocative philosopher on, on a number of different fronts. Um, philosophers still read the, his first book, The Treatise of Human Nature, and, and take this to be his masterpiece. And, and uh, it's kind of a book that on which beginning philosophy students, uh, you know, kind of cut their teeth and, and deal with all of Hume's really complex arguments in that book about causation and personal identity and, and a whole number of things. But he was also a really wide-ranging thinker. The philosophy is almost just the tip of the iceberg. He was known for many generations as a historian first and a philosopher second. He wrote a massive six-volume history of England that became a bestseller. It was seen as the kind of standard history of England for, I think, almost a century. Um, he wrote a great deal on religion. He wrote great many essays on a whole range of topics. Lots of them are on, on politics, but on, on a whole range of topics, um, aesthetics, that y- you name it. So he's really one of the, in addition to being a, a 
a great thinker on epistemology, which is what he's best known for today. He, he really did influence a, a huge range of, of subjects. And we'll put up links to a lot of his um, work, which we have online. Um, now, reading your book and reading some Hume more recently in my life, as I was reading and writing about the theory of moral sentiments, it, it's a little alarming for a Smith fan to see how much Hume there is in Smith. Now, <laughs> Hume is older uh, by what, I want to say 12, 12 years? years? Yeah, yes. 12 years older than, than Smith. Um, and so Smith was already, excuse me, Hume was already a, a world famous person when Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments was published in 1759. And I always suspected, having dabbled in Hume, that, wow, some of these ideas in Smith must have come from Hume. I didn't realize until I read your book that the whole beginning of uh, the Theory of Moral Sentiments is in some sense a response to Hume, an extension of Hume. Uh, the whole book is to some extent an extension of Hume. And yet, as you point out, in that opening section, at least, uh, Smith says nothing of Hume, does not mention his name. And yet the examples he uses, many of them are the same. So for readers of the day, they understood, uh, I assume, that, that it was a – it had – Hume was the was sort of the backstory of the opening of the theory of moral sentiments. But for us today, it's not so obvious. So talk about a couple things. Talk about first uh, what was – Hume's vision of morality and, and and then how Smith extended it and then maybe speculate on why uh, Smith didn't explicitly talk about Hume in that opening in those opening chapters. Okay, so the bigger big questions, but I'll I'll try yeah, to tackle. We can spend the next of the we can spend the rest of the time obviously on the just telling us about Hume's view of sympathy and morality, but uh, yeah, do what you can. Sure. So Hume argues that morality doesn't come from reason. It doesn't come from the word or will of God. It comes from us. It comes from, in particular, our sentiments, our our sentiment of approval or approbation. Um, So that's not to say, of course, many students, when I first introduce Hume's thought and, and say that morality comes from human sentiments, they immediately think, Oh, so that just means whatever feels right to me is right for me. And obviously that can't be right, you know, that that we feel bad things all the time. And so Hume says we need to correct for our personal biases, for misinformation and so forth, by adopting what he calls either the general point of view or the common point of view. We need to look at actions, look at character traits from the standpoint of a sort of outside observer. And this is exactly what Smith would come to call the impartial spectator. I think that Smith's impartial spectator plays the exact kind of parallel role to the general point of view does in Hume's. So both argue that morality relies on disinterested sentiments. That is what we feel when we adopt a, a position of when we have full information and when we're disinterested or impartial, we're kind of third party perspective. Um, as for why Hume didn't. So, so you're you're right to say, and I, I think it's pretty clear that Smith is engaging with Hume throughout the theory of moral sentiments, as you say, down to the very examples he uses. He, of course, doesn't. Many Hume scholars would say, "Oh, well, there's no point even bother. No point even reading Smith. It's all there in Hume already anyway. We, we kind of have it all there." I don't think that's right. I think there are a number of places in which. Um, Smith extends or modifies Hume's view. In fact, he's, he's 
almost can't stop himself. Every time he brings up something of Hume, he says, well, this is right. The basic point is right here. Morality comes from the sentiments. It originates in what they call sympathy. But he says, no, sympathy doesn't work quite the way you think, Hume, or utility doesn't play as big of a role as you think here, Hume. He's constantly modifying, constantly changing Hume's views. Um, but as I started to say, he's engaging with Hume throughout the book. He never mentions Hume. Now, there are a number of potential reasons for this. One scholar speculates as well that Smith is really cautious and prudent and he doesn't want to get mixed up with you know, Hume's religious skepticism or call too much attention to that side of his own thought. Um, I think that's probably not right. So first of all, he rarely names any of the philosophers whom he's engaging with, with uh, throughout the book, except for part seven, which is on previous systems of moral philosophy. He generally just talks as if he's, as you suggested, as if he's just bringing up an idea that no one's ever thought of. <laughs> right, yeah, or, or just that this is a, an idea that might come to you, dear reader, that, that you might have thought through, and this is what I think about it. But if you know what Hume says, it's pretty clear in a lot of instances that he's, uh, um, he's engaging with Hume. In some cases, he refers more or less directly to Hume. He uh, um, he'll he'll refer to you know this ingenious and agreeable author or something of the sort and you know anyone who's read Hume knows he's talking about Hume here. Um, but so why else might he not have used Hume's name? Well, partly he's engaging with Hume's thought not just in the, the kind of second presentation of Smith's moral theory, the inquiry concerning the principles of morals, but also in his first book, The Treatise of Human Nature. And that's a book that Hume published anonymously. And in the 18th century, it's kind of a faux pas to, to name the author of a work if the work isn't published under that author's name. It, it was just not something that, um, that, that was generally done. The other thing to note, I think, is that by this point, Hume, I, I said earlier that the treatise is widely seen by philosophers as Hume's masterpiece, the, the, great, his, the greatest work he ever published. Um, ironically, it's a work that he came to all but disavow, not uh, only a few years after he had published it. Um, and Smith was presumably well aware of Hume's feelings on that subject. So I think he might have avoided referring to Hume by name in part for Hume's own sake. But again, with the number of unambiguous references to, to Hume throughout there, um, I, I don't think it was just a matter of caution or, or you know, wanting to avoid Hume's skepticism. I don't think any uh, pious reader who's looking for allusions to Hume could possibly miss them. Um, yeah, it's um, a modern person would say, well, he left out those references to Hume because he wanted people to think they were his ideas. And that's probably not a good hypothesis because we know they were good friends. They stayed good friends for decades after this <laughs> – a couple decades right. after this, this uh, Smith's book came out. And I think, I think what's interesting is that – is your point that anyone reading at the time would have known he was talking about Hume. Uh, but in our time, they don't. And it's, it's an interesting question uh, why Smith – is world famous today and Hume is relatively obscure. Of course, your book may rescue Hume from some obscurity, but it's the, it is the case that, that Smith's reputation eclipses Hume's uh, in, among the general public uh, in, in a much greater way. Some might so suggest not for moral philosophy, right? Correct. Statement. No, for philosophy, yeah, but, but most, people, most people don't know about philosophy. <laughs> it's a, it's, sure, a, it's right. a small, you know, it's. Um, it's like talking about Adam Smith as a philosopher. Philosophers know about Adam Smith as a philosopher a little bit. Most people have no idea he had philosophical writing. Um, 
But it's interesting to speculate. I, I think this is unfair to Smith, but it's it's crossed my mind that part of his uh, reputation is due to the uh, his I would call it marketing. He, he's a much better writer than most of the people of his era. Hume's a delightful writer too. I discovered from your book, but uh, Smith is a little more accessible, and he packaged his his ideas in in formats and in in two books that you know came down to us through the ages with with great acclaim. Even though much of the ideas, many of the ideas in those books are not totally original. Comment on that? Well. I don't know if any philosopher is totally original, right? Every philosopher, except for, you know, starting at the ancient Greeks, when people are first starting to do philosophy, are drawing on and engaging with their their predecessors, right? So a lot of the ideas that that Hume has are not original to him. He's drawing on and engaging with Locke or Francis Hutcheson or or others. So I don't know that it's just Smith drawing on Hume, but Hume's this great original thinker. Of course, both are great and original in, in certain respects, but they're also engaging with their predecessors in certain respects. But I, don't, I would also, yes, as you say, I, I think Hume was a great writer. The history of England is a really great read, and this is partly why it became so famous. I think it was much more famous in the 18th century than either of Smith's books or, or any of Hume's other works. Yeah. So, yeah, it is just a matter of kind of what, what came down to us and the, the way the wealth of nations changed the world <laughs> in a way that, say, Hume's history of England didn't for all of its fame and all of its um, readership. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, one of the things I learned from your book, which uh, which really fascinated me, was the differences and similarities between Hume and Smith's views of commercial life. And if you'd asked me before I read your book, not proud of this, but being honest here, uh, you know what's what's Smith's view of commerce? I would have said Smith views commerce. That is, by commerce, I mean what what Wordsworth called. Uh, Getting and uh, spending—that is, earning money, buying stuff, um, being an employee, being a merchant—all uh, of these activities that that we might call commercial—that Smith saw those as leading to virtue because they forced you to put yourself in the shoes of another person. You had to figure out what other people want if you're selling them something. The whole idea of exchange, the human propensity to truck barter and exchange—that Smith talks about is our natural interactions with the people around us and that and that there's a humanizing influence there. And you've you allude to that in your book, but you say a lot more about Smith and Hume's view of commercial life generally. So talk about what they believed and uh, the similarities and differences. Sure. So Hume's view of commercial society, of commerce, the the kind of moral, social, political effects of commerce is overwhelmingly positive. My students are always shocked to learn that his view is much more overwhelmingly positive than Smith's is, given Smith's reputation as the the founding father of capitalism and the like. He, um, in one of the essays that I think is one of Hume's greatest essays, it was first published as a called uh, under the title of luxury later republished under the title of refinement in the arts. I think is one of the most um, forceful 
comprehensive and yet succinct defenses of the modern liberal commercial order ever written. He argues that commerce brings with it in its wake an, what he calls an indissoluble chain of industry, knowledge, and humanity. It makes us more virtuous. It makes us more free. He sounds a couple of warning signs about um, the colonialism, about mounting public debts and the like, but really it's an overwhelmingly positive view of commerce. Smith, of course, too, sees commerce as in general a force for great good, um, but he's much more willing, actually, I think, than Hume is to acknowledge potential dangers, drawbacks, downsides of commercial society. And this is something I've written on going back to, all the way back to my very first book, which was on Adam Smith's response to Rousseau's critique of commercial society. Um, so he does, in, I think, and this is both in the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, he expresses worries about, well, yes, we're going to be rich, but we're going to have all these inequalities. Maybe the division of labor will render us feeble and ignorant. You know, we spend our whole lives making the, the 18th part of a pin. We don't have time to exercise our minds. Um, there are worries about uh, our admiration for the rich, corrupting our moral sentiments. Um, and I, the one I've really stressed, I think, a lot in the theory of moral sentiments is that the desire for wealth can lead us to, you know, s submit ourselves to endless toil and endless anxiety in the pursuit of what are, after all, frivolous material goods that in, in Smith's view will provide at best fleeting satisfaction. None of this is to say, of course, that Smith didn't support, didn't defend commercial society. He, of, of course he did. He very much joined Hume in thinking that the benefits of commercial society, the, the liberty, security, prosperity, and the rest outweigh the costs. That he, he too found earlier forms of society as totally objectionable. They both see most of human history as a story of oppression and dependence and misery. So it's definitely, if we're, I sometimes frame it in, in terms of a sort of cost-benefit analysis, the, the benefits of commercial society for Hume way outweigh the costs. But I think he's more willing than Hume is to say, well, there are costs involved. So how, how, how should we try to ameliorate these through education and the like? Yeah, he was an economist. He, he was willing to, he, he saw that there were trade-offs, but he decided that the benefits outweighed the costs, but as you point out, doesn't mean it's all rosy. And uh, you know, I, I think one of the most shocking things about the theory of moral sentiments that people who don't know anything about Smith would, other than his name and a little bit about him, would be shocked is, is what you just said that he really saw wealth and, and the pursuit of wealth as, as corrosive and unhealthy. And uh, um, it's fascinating that the so-called father of capitalism felt that way uh i just really like that but there's another can aspect I, that, can I interrupt you yeah, right sure there. so i think it's corrosive of happiness in certain ways right the anxiety that he understands happiness mostly in terms of tranquility and yeah. the way we undermine our tranquility by constantly grasping for more and more material goods this is there's a famous passage about the ambitious poor man's son who yep. wastes his whole life trying to attain what he sees what he thinks is the supreme happiness of the rich. And then later in life, he looks back and he says, oh, I wasted my life trying to get these things that wouldn't have made me happy anyway. I don't know that Smith thinks the activity of commerce is also corrosive of morality. I think there he does think that it plays a, a beneficial role in the oh, way absolutely. that you, you said a minute ago, yeah. where you do have to think about what other people want. You do in commercial society, you're constantly dealing with other people. You need and, and so your success rests on your reputation among relative equals. And how do you gain a good reputation by behaving 
admirably on the whole. And so he does think, at least for the middling classes, as he calls them, or the middling ranks, he does think, he says quite explicitly in the theory of moral sentiments, honesty really is the best policy for them. So I think commerce does, it, it might not make us the most um, noble, benevolent people in the world, but it does prevent a lot of depravity, he thinks. So the, the commerce does, I think, with regard to morality, if not happiness, play in general positive role for Smith. Well, I think that's a good distinction to make, right? There's a distinction between the act of making a living, which is an honorable and can be a very uh, virtue-enhancing thing, depending on what you choose and how you li- how you choose to, to do it, and pursuing wealth for its own sake or focusing on how much money you can make or trying to become famous, etc. And I think Smith said more than just what you said, I mean, you gave a nice example of how it, you know, it keeps you up at night because you're worried your business might not make it or whatever it is. <laughs> but it's more than that, right? Smith also warned that it, it, it'll corrupt your morals if you pursue money or fame or power too aggressively. You'll find yourself doing things that you'll later regret, not just that you've wasted your time pursuing money, but that you'll do things that will be dishonorable. And I've always thought that part of that came from Smith's time. Uh, entrepreneurship was quite limited. He, he could not have romanticized an entrepreneur much. There weren't inventors, yes, maybe, but not what we would call an entrepreneur today. And a lot of the people that he saw grasping for fame and power and, and wealth were people in the nobility who were you – know, I think he talks about them being engaged in you know intrigue in the court to try to get their star advanced. And that he viewed, I think, as with a, with a, lo- with a lot of negativity. Yes, absolutely. So in the same uh, that same chapter that I just referred to, where he says oh, the, the, for the um, middling and inferior stations, that honesty really is the best policy. He goes on to say that unfortunately, this isn't true for what he calls the superior stations, the rich, the nobility. Um, why? Well, partly they're pretty much above the law. They can do whatever they want without having to worry about um, being punished for it. But also that they're just put in a position where they're admired on account of their wealth. People are dazzled, enchanted by their riches. And so they don't have to act admirably to get people to admire them. Yeah. And so Smith sees this as a really kind of illiberal part of our psychology, that this tendency to admire the rich when the rich really, for him, aren't, don't tend to be very admirable people. And there's one other uh, part of the commercial life that we haven't talked about that you talk about in the book that was really the most startling for me, because I just had missed it in Smith, and it's in Hume as well, uh, I'm going to read a, a quote uh, from your book. You say the following. If asked to nominate the single most important passage in the wealth of nations, a reasonable candidate would be the climactic claim of book three. And here you quote uh, the wealth of nations. Commerce and manufacturers gradually introduced order and good government. And with them, the liberty and security of individuals among the inhabitants of the country who had before lived almost in a continual state of war with their neighbors and of servile dependency on their superiors. This, though it has been the least observed, is by far the most important of all their effects. Uh, That's the end of the quote from Smith and, and from your book. Now, I would disagree with you. I don't think anyone would name that as the single most important passage in the wealth of nations, but that's okay. Uh, so you can defend that if you want, but I, it was the single most illuminating passage you quote for the Wealth of Nations for me as a as a casual Smith scholar because I think if you had asked me or most people to, to think about Smith liberty and economics, they'd say, well, Smith believed that it's important to have liberty so that you can have a good economy. The government shouldn't intervene too much, laissez-faire. Of course, he's not an anarcho-capitalist. Smith had 
he's a classical liberal. He had a role for government, limited, but definitely a role for government. And so that's what I would have said. But what you're pointing out is that Smith actually argued something equally interesting and maybe much more profound, which is that the causation runs the other direction, that the increase in commerce and standard of living and uh, commercial life in in Europe in particular led to liberty, brought about the liberty that, that is cherished for its own sake. So give us Smith's argument and then talk about how, how Hume also uh, uh, said similar things and to the ex- in what extent they disagree. Sure. And so you, can, the, you can defend your claim if you want that it's the single most – one of the more important passages in The Wealth of Nations. No, I'll, I'll <laughs> stick to my guns and say it is the single most important. I, the, the reason why I say that – I mean Smith says it quite explicitly there – he says, this, though it has been the least observed, is by far the most important of all of commerce's effects. So he's telling us in this line what is by far the most important effect of all the effects that commerce has had. And that it's exactly what you just said, that it pr- promotes liberty and security in a world that had seen very little of it. So how did one. that you – know, what's the chain of causation? Because most people would say, well, what, what, what does that mean? How, how could that be? So he's contrasting commercial society with the feudal era that had preceded it in Europe and that to some extent still existed in his own backyard in the Scottish Highlands. Um, But really with that throughout Europe, he thinks during the kind of Middle Ages, there's this feudal system where you have these great landowners who exercise basically complete authority over the peasants or serfs who work their land. Um, The king's power isn't really strong enough to reach into their estate so they can do whatever they want. So Smith runs through and just shows the, the miserable condition of these serfs. They're um, unable to, they're kind of bought and sold with the land. They can't move freely. They have to work at whatever occupation their Lord tells them to do. They're, they have to get their Lord's permission in order to get married. They have to follow their Lord into battle whenever they're told to do so. And the story that Smith tells in book three of the Wealth of Nations is about how these feudal lords ended up squandering their authority over their source for the sake of frivolous luxuries. So the idea is once commerce started to pick up, once you have more manufactured goods, once you have more luxuries, the lords have something on which to spend their money other than maintaining all of these serfs, one that Smith says they immediately adopt out of greed and vanity. So he says that for something as frivolous as a pair of diamond buckles, they trade all of their they basically spend all their money, they can no longer afford to keep all these serfs and it's a long, complicated story. The kings and the, the city dwellers kind of gang up against the, the lords in order to, to bring them down a peg. But basically, it's commerce that, that plays this function. That and Trade, foreign trade as well, right, as right, part of trade, that commerce. Yes, the importation of luxuries does in the feudal system so that once you get a commercial society, yes – an employee might want to please his or her employer in order to keep their job, but you know, you're know you very unlikely to surrender your rights to your employer or follow them into battle whenever they want to do so, right? So that the kind of the interdependence of the market allows this personal freedom, personal um, independence that you just didn't get in most previous eras of human history. So this is his story of why the, the causal arrow runs that way, why it's commerce that led to liberty and security. Um, with the advent of commercial society. Now, as I point out in the book, this he, he tells this story at great length in book three of The Wealth of Nations. It's taken basically directly from Hume. Hume doesn't go into nearly as much detail as Smith does about this story, nor does he make it nearly as central, I think, in his thought as Smith does. But you find this very abbreviated in one of Hume's essays, and then in a couple of the different um, 
volumes of the history of England, Hume tells a similar story. So in that passage that you read just a minute ago, immediately after saying this the introduction of liberty and security, this though has been the least observed is by far the most important of all of commerce's effects. He then goes on to say, Mr. Hume is the only writer who I know who has been taken notice of this before. Um, this is a sort of odd claim insofar as Locke and Montesquieu, there are lots of people arguing that commerce had gone hand in hand with liberty and security. Um, he might be referring more to this specific mechanism, the way commerce leads to the downfall of the feudal lords, where I think he is drawing from Hume. But it is striking that in this passage that, again, I'm still saying is the most important one in the whole wealth of nations, he basically says that Hume got there first. Hume had this idea before I did. And I want to, I want to, um, I want to stand up for Mr. Smith just a bit here. I don't want to overstate the, this point that a lot of, it's a fact that Hume influenced Smith. Smith, of course, had read Hume. There are many ideas in Smith that, that are in Hume and many ideas from other – we wouldn't call them economists. They didn't think of themselves as economists, but there were other people writing, uh, Mandeville and others, who Smith obviously was influenced by. But I don't want to understate uh, Smith's contribution either, and so I want to just – I'm going to make my own sort of summary of it, and uh, then you can, you can chime in or uh, disagree if you'd like, but – I think often there's a temptation to see an author's contribution as in, 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 in the form of a tweet. Oh, yeah, Adam Smith, he understood that specialization was important. Or Adam Smith had this idea that some systems were self-regulating, what we call the invisible hand. Or Adam Smith thought free trade was really good and had a lot of good arguments um, in favor of it. And – there's an enormous difference between the Twitter version of a, of a great idea and the actual writing of a great idea. And as you point out, use the example theory of moral sentiments as an example. Yes, there were the idea that morality comes from ourselves, from human interaction, from sympathy. Uh, that was in Hume. So that's not novel to Smith. But Smith's treatment of it is very novel. Smith's treatment of it and extension of it, his um, – uh, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about it later, but there are other aspects of – there's just – it's a rich book. It's not like you'd read Hume and then as you're reading Smith go, oh, I read all this. I knew all this already. You still learn things from it. So I always find it interesting when people will dis show disdain for a book that I that I particularly like saying, oh, well, I knew all that before I read it. Now, I, I might respond and say, well, I knew it in the abstract or I knew it sort of, but the actual treatment of the author really enriched it for me in a way that that shortened version that – or the versions I'd read before didn't do. And I think that's extremely important, and it's easy to, to underappreciate it. I agree completely, and I think that The Wealth of Nations is also a great example of this. So I point out a lot of the, the kind of key arguments of, in The Wealth of Nations are anticipated in Hume's essays on political economy. So definitely not the stuff on the division of labor. Hume takes almost no notice of the division of labor, which is, of course, really central in uh, Smith, but Hume's arguing for free trade decades before the wealth of nation appears, saying, you know, what's the true source of a nation's wealth? Is not gold, it's not silver, or it's not a positive balance of trade. It's a productive citizenry. Um, that politicians' attempts to guide or control people's economic choices are going to be. Um, either just futile or maybe even positively counterproductive, that free trade is to the benefit of all, all parties involved. Um, we, you, you can't get rich by beggaring neighboring countries and so on. Um, so Hume's 
you know, one of the first thinkers to argue for free trade and, and, and anticipates, I don't know that he, Smith got his idea for free trade. Dugald Stewart, Smith's first biographer, is really insistent that Smith uh, always really wanted to assert his originality on this score, that he had had this idea long ago, starting with his Edinburgh lectures in the early 1750s, that it's even before Hume published his essays on political economy. So I'll say that Hume anticipated Smith, even if he's not Smith's source for um, the argument for free trade. But as you say, putting it all together in one package in the Wealth of Nations, this monumental argument against mercantilism made it quite a bit more influential than Hume's scattered essays were, could have had. And it's, and it's more than that, right? It's not just that Smith said free trade good, mercantilism bad, and people went, oh, that's interesting. It, he makes the case in a way that's incredibly thought-provoking. And he I mean, I, one of the things that always bugs me is when people say, well, Smith was in favor of X, and you go back and you read it in context, and he did – there's a sentence that can be taken out of context that says he was in favor of X, say, public uh, financing of education. So Smith says, yeah, this might – this is justified because education leads to lots of benefits, and um, that's not a bad idea. Then he goes on to say, but it's probably not. Here's why, because it's going to make people not work as hard, and it's not going to be as effective, and – so I, I just think it's incredibly important to think about nuance. And then, as you point out, uh, in the theory of moral sentiments, Smith, even though he draws a lot on Hume, has his own vision that's quite compelling and probably more intellectually appealing of where our sympathies come from. Uh, you know, Hume has the contagion idea, and Smith rejects it. And talk about that, that contagion argument of Hume's for where sympathies come from and how Smith viewed it. Sure. So let me just start by saying I've been sort of making a case here that, that Hume's writings on political economy have been unduly neglected in favor of Smith. He's seen as a, a kind of minor predecessor of Smith when it comes to economic thinking, if he's taking notice of it all, or I, 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 trying to make a case for his importance there. I make the reverse case when it comes to moral philosophy. So among philosophers, Smith's Moral theory has long been seen as a, almost a series of footnotes to Hume's and not all that important. Um, it's starting to come around where philosophers are starting to pay attention to Smith. Um, and I think they really should because I think Smith's um, advances on Hume's moral theory are substantial and important and I think, frankly, persuasive. Um, so the, the point that you asked me to discuss, so both of their moral theories rely on what they call sympathy. Uh, but they have a very different view of what the nature of sympathy is. The way Hume describes sympathy is basically just a mechanism that transports emotions from one person to another. So the idea is, I see you're really happy, you're, you're, you've just gotten a long way to promotion, you're really happy, and I see that and it makes me happy. Or you've just lost a loved one, you're very sad, I see that and it makes me sad. And as you note, he sometimes calls this even an emotional contagion. It just transmits, sympathy just transmits feelings from one person to another. And the whole first chapter of the theory of moral sentiments is arguing that that's not quite right, that sympathy can't work that um, in that straightforward fashion. So Smith gives the example of anger, right? You don't become angry when you see an angry person. Maybe if you learned what made that person angry, maybe you would become angry, maybe not. It depends on if their anger is warranted. And he says this is true even of the kinds of examples that Hume used uh, of joy and sorrow, that you really don't feel much joy or much sorrow on somebody else's behalf until you've placed yourself imaginatively in their shoes. So you can imagine 
two individuals who are exhibiting just identical signs of anguish. And then you learn that the first person that all the anguish is provoked by a paper cut, and the second person is provoked by the death of a spouse or a loved one, right? You're obviously much more likely to sympathize with the second person than the first. But on the Humean view, right, they're both exhibiting identical signs. Presumably we should be catching, you know, in this contagion-like way, catching their feelings in the same way. And Smith wants to say, no, it's by imaginatively projecting yourself into their situation that you really get a sense of – uh, or you, you can really come to share or maybe not share their sentiments. This is another one of the other things Smith says is because the sympathy takes place in this more complicated way, we don't just catch people's feelings, whatever they happen to be. There's space for us to say whether their emotion is warranted, right? The person with the paper cut, the grief, the great grief that they're feeling and exhibiting wasn't warranted in that case. And so there's more room for judgment of people's emotions in the Smithian understanding of sympathy. Yeah, um, and of course Smith has some incredibly subtle things to say about our ability to sympathize with people's joy and their sorrow. Right? He says sometimes your joys—I can't share in it. It's just—it's over a big thing. I, you know, and there's and there's an enormous range of who I can share those things with. It might just encourage jealousy in certain situations and certain types of sorrows you don't share because the people can't around you can't sympathize with them either. And so again, it's our our quick thumbnail of yours or mine of how Smith viewed sympathy or whatever it is, is never going to capture the richness. Now, maybe it's in Hume also, right? We're also not capturing the richness of Hume's treatment. But I I just think it's interesting how people are quick to dismiss things like this. They saying, oh, yeah, that was already done. Well, maybe it was, but it was done in a different way, in a unique way, in a special way, in a way that helped you understand it better. So um, uh, talk about the so-called Adam Smith problem. You know, I have my own take on this. I want to hear yours. Some people have argued it's weird that the wealth of nations uh, is, 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 I think, uh, to paraphrase George Stigler, it's built on the bedrock of self-interest was the way he put it, somewhere, something like that, where it's an edifice built on the bedrock of self-interest, whereas the theory of moral sentiments is all about how I think about other people. There's very little of empathy in the wealth of nations, and there's very little um, – uh, there's some self-interest in the theory of moral sentiments, of course, but uh, all the things we talked about in terms of the corrosive aspects of wealth pursuit kind of go on mostly unmentioned in The Wealth of Nations. And yet we know that Smith wrote the theory of moral sentiments before The Wealth of Nations and revised it many times after. So how do you understand the connection between the two these two great works? I guess I, I'm never struck by the, the supposed incompatibility in the way other people are. I think – I mentioned a while ago some of the drawbacks, dangers of commercial society that that Smith pointed to. A lot of those come from the wealth of nations, the worries about the division of labor, the worries about merchants, you know, ganging up and and harming the the public interest and so forth. There's quite a bit of, you know, worries about the dangers of commercial society and trying to find ways to ameliorate them, even in the wealth of nations. It doesn't all come from the theory of moral sentiments. I guess – to be honest, I don't have anything that profound to say about this. They're just books on different topics, right? One's a book on moral philosophy. How is it that we moral standards arise? What does morality consist of? The other is on political economy. How should we organize the economic life? What was the role of government and all of that? And so, of course, the emphases are going to be different because there are books on, on different topics. But I, I've never seen the, the, uh, the, the big yawning gap between the two that many others seem to have seen. Well, I think the question is, 
given that we're empathetic, um, limited. We have limited ability to empathize, but we do empathize, uh, which is Smith's view of human nature and uh, theory of moral sentiments. Uh, it's interesting that it, it it plays little or no role in the wealth of nations, but I think the reason is, is that the wealth of nations is about trade and trade writ large, uh, where I'm dealing mostly with strangers and my ability to empathize is going to be relatively small. Um, I think there are other interesting connections between the works, two works. I'm writing a long essay on it. So if I get it done uh, in the near future, I'll try to put a link to it up, up to it in this essay. But uh, I take my, I agree with you fundamentally. It, it's not as big a, a puzzle as, as it's often made out to be. Let's talk a little bit about religion. Uh, a good chunk of the book, of your book, is about uh, – Hume's identity as as the infidel, as you call him in the title, the the uh, heretic who uh, is very very critical, certainly in in much of his writing and in his private personal life as well, of organized religion and and the and how the contributions of organized religion. Smith, on the other hand, is much more favorable, as is ironically or not Hayek, even though Hayek also was a, was an atheist. Um, Hayek saw religion as a force for good in the world. Smith concedes, unlike him, there are some good things about religion, but masks or cloaks his own religious views somewhat, and um, for a variety of reasons. So, talk about those the two personality differences in their careers about the, this issue, and uh, where you think uh, Smith's where Smith really uh, what his real beliefs were. Sure. So, yeah. This is one of the running themes of the book, that how, how much they diverged with regard to at least the public postures that they adopt with regard to religion. So Hume, as you say, I, I think atheist is too strong even for Hume. He called himself a skeptic. Yeah, an agnostic would be a better term word. agnostic, yeah. right. Um, but he's relatively forthright about his lack of faith. Sometimes he sort of closed this, you know, he'll put his arguments in the, in the mouths of a character in a dialogue or something. But he's really not that careful about hiding his, his skepticism with regard to religion. Um, where Smith constantly goes to great lengths in, in both his writings and his personal life to avoid revealing much about his religious beliefs or, or lack thereof. And so, one of, as I say, one of the running themes is that these contrary postures lead to equally contrary reputations. Hume, as you say, is seen as this great infidel. He's, among other things, deemed unfit to teach the young. He twice applies for professorships, one at Edinburgh and one at Glasgow, but in both cases he's turned down because of his irreligion. Whereas Smith, who play, plays his cards much closer to the vest, becomes this widely respected professor of moral philosophy. And so, as you say, that's the contrast implicit in the title, uh, the, the infidel and the professor. Now, Smith's religious views, this has been the subject of a great deal of scholarly debate and controversy. There's no settled view at all on what his religious views were. Um, some argue that he was a good, sincere Christian believer. Um, others go so far as to say that he's a closet atheist. Um, I wouldn't go to either of those extremes, but certainly my reading is closer to the kind of skeptical end of the um, the spectrum. So I end up calling him a, a skeptical deist. So that is to say, um, more of a deist than Hume, but more of a skeptic than, than most people think. So I think it's likely that he believed in some kind of distant, maybe benevolent higher power, but I think he's almost certainly not a believing Christian, um, that he was suspicious of most forms of religious belief and devotion. And I think this comes out in his works, in the things, his correspondence, in other things that we know about him in his life. Yeah, well, I didn't realize, I'm ashamed to say, that that his uh, 
Letter to Strahan, which is a f- famous among Smith scholars, but not to the average listener. It, Strahan was uh, Smith's publisher, so at the time of Hume's death, uh, Smith wrote a, a letter to Strahan that summarized his view of, of Hume that was going to be appended to Hume's autobiography, a sort of a post-mortem, literally. Um, and it's one of the most beautiful things in the world. It, it's almost worth reading the entire thing out loud. I will not do that. But at the end, um, it's a gorgeous, inspiring pay-in to friendship and to decency and, and a, a wonderful human being, which is how we saw David Hume. I didn't realize until I read your book that that engendered a lot of controversy because uh, Smith at the end, I think it's the last sentence, calls Hume, I think, wise and virtuous. And virtuous is, for many Christians, impossible without a belief in Christianity. And so this got Smith tangled up in a lot of um, – well, he didn't get tangled up because he didn't he didn't respond. But it, it stirred up a lot of controversy. So talk about that. Yeah, so this is a, a work – this is actually the only work other than Smith's two books that he published under his name – under his own name during his lifetime. A number of essays were published posthumously by his literary executors, and then we have notes from, student notes from classes. I'm always horrified by the idea, you know, (laughs) if if people took what I thought by what my students write down during class, I'd be horrified. But in any case, we have so little to go with on on from Smith. uh, It's it's inevitable, I suppose. So this is one of the three things he publishes in his lifetime. Um, He kind of got Hume's uh, permission to do this in advance as Hume was dying. He said, hey, do you mind if I write a kind of addendum, a complete your story of your life um, by telling the story from where you leave off a couple months before your death uh, up to your death? And Hume immediately says, yeah, sure, whatever you want to do, I give you entire liberty on this score. So this is kind of the authorized version of Hume's death. Now, because of Hume's rep- entirely deserved reputation for impiety, his death is a really highly scrutinized event. Everybody around Britain is asking, so how is Hume going to die? Is he going to persist in his unbelief? Is he going to, you know, recant his skepticism? Is he going to die in a state of distress or remorse? He has none of the usual consolations. Yeah, Christopher Hitchens. How is he going to die? Christopher Hitchens is kind of the modern version of this, right? People were wondering if his... (laughs) Yes, and there were actually a number of parallels drawn between Hitchens and Hume when Hitchens died. Actually, quite a lot of similarities. Um, and Hume, so, so Smith gets to write this because he's Hume's best friend, gets to write effectively the authorized version. He knows, both Hume and Smith know how much people are going to care about this and pay attention to the way Hume dies. And so Smith gets to write this authorized version that's published right alongside my own life, both as a separate pamphlet and then as the preface to the, the future editions of Hume's works. And throughout the work, Smith never really calls attention to Hume's impiety in in this letter, the way, for instance, James Boswell, the, the famous deathbed interview with Hume, really Hume is, is brash about religion in that interview as he is anywhere in, in, in anything that we have recorded from him. Smith doesn't, he records Smith, uh, sorry, he records Hume um, giving a little joke uh, about that, that seems irreligious, but he doesn't really flaunt. Um, and he sanitizes it a little bit, actually, as you point yeah, out. Yeah, a, a tiny, tiny bit, right? Um, that that is nevertheless Hume is everybody knows he's this notorious infidel everybody is paying attention to this and so what Smith does flaunt is 
the cheerfulness, the equanimity of Hume's final days, the, the way he's just living life as he always had. He's hanging out with his friends, reading books. You know, he's not that, that Hume isn't worried um, in the least. And then, yes, the concluding line, which you, you alluded to, ended up being really one of the most fateful sentences Smith ever wrote. So Smith says in this concluding line that Hume, uh, I'm going to just read a little sentence here. Upon the whole, I have always considered him, both in his lifetime and since his death, as approaching as nearly to the idea of a perfectly wise and virtuous man as perhaps the nature of human frailty will permit. Right. So this idea that his unbelieving friend, this avowed skeptic, is a paragon of wisdom and virtue generates just outrage among the devout. It, it, as one contemporary commented, it, it shocked every sober Christian. So Smith later famously commented in a, a one of the few letters that we have from him, he famously commented that this work, the, the letter to Strahan on Hume's death, brought on me 10 times more abuse than the very violent attack I'd made on the whole commercial system of Great Britain. Um, this has become a relatively famous line, at least among Smith scholars, because of the, of course, the very colorful reference to the wealth of nations, right? It's a very violent attack on the whole commercial system yeah, of Great it's a, Britain. It's but a great self-description of his work, yeah. Right. But it, even Smith scholars, I think very few know the, you know, they know that he has suffered some abuse because of this line, that the, the letter brought on me 10 times more abuse. But the, the precise nature and really extent of the abuse that, Hume, that Smith suffered as a re- result of this tribute to Hume isn't widely known. And so I spend a whole chapter, chapter 12 on this, um, documenting the often really quite vicious reactions to it. But uh, the, the leading critic was a guy named George Horn, who's a very prominent cleric at the time, but also people like Samuel Johnson, James Boswell, Edmund Burke. And this isn't just, you know, a momentary thing that a month or two people are, are criticizing him and then it's gone. Decades later, even well into the 19th century, people are still really criticizing Smith for, for this um, for this letter. Yeah, I, I knew nothing of that. I was really enjoyed that chapter and the whole idea of it. It also made me realize, though, that I had Failed to see a connection in that last sentence. I was going to read it out loud myself, so I'm glad you read it. Um, to the theory of moral sentiments, which is that you know Smith says in the theory of moral sentiments that uh, man naturally desires not only to be loved but to be lovely. And he says to be lovely, there's the easy way to be lovely is I mean, by lovely he meant excuse me to be loved. The easy way to be loved that is for people to pay attention to you to to think you're important. The easy path is is fame, riches, uh, power. And so Smith says, that's the easy path. Don't go that way. He says, you know, what you want to choose, because that's tempting, but it's not good for you. He says, the real way to be loved is to be wise and virtuous. And I, I don't know if I've ever really noticed that that's the exact way he describes Hume as the ideal, right? Uh, at least I don't remember thinking that before. So I just, I really, I really appreciated that. The only... Um, did you want to comment? Yeah, I was just going to say it is really striking, right? That, so he writes this whole moral theory. There's all this debate about, well, how integral is religion in this moral theory? What kind of role does it play? Um, I say at one point in the book, that, in a formulation that I'm particularly proud of, that Smith sees religion not as a foundation or even a pillar, but rather as a buttress. It, it supports morality from the outside, which is to say, for most people it is. He thinks religion is a, a, a buttress for virtue. It does. People are more likely to act morally if they think that the general rules of morality that their society has formed are, you know, come from God. That He says it gives us every more reason to hold these rules sacred. Um, but I don't think that the structure of his moral theory that relig- religion is a precondition 
sorry, the, yes, religion is a precondition for virtue, that you have to be religious in order to be virtuous. But I think the letter to Strahan really drives home how dispensable it is, right? The paragon of wisdom and virtue, in his view, isn't Jesus or a Christian saint, but the skeptic Hume, I think, is really telling. Of course, it's only one data point, which I think sure. Hume, Hume would point out, that, that Hume is only one data point. <laughs> you want enough. to look more generally. But the only, the only footnote I put to that, which I was um, – and I noticed that you didn't bring this in because it's, it happens to be one of my favorite passages, maybe my favorite passage in uh, in the theory of moral sentiments. I would make a distinction between Smith's view of religion and Smith's view of of, of God. When you said he's a more of a deist than than Hume, I think for sure that's true. He certainly would invoke providence or the author of nature, and I, I, people have told me, oh, that he just did that to make people comfortable. Who knows? I have no way of knowing that. But but there's this. Really fascinating passage in um, Theory of Moral Sentiments I'm going to read, and I'm, I'm reading it. The reason it's my favorite, one of my favorites, if not my all, real number one favorite, is that to me this is the best description of the invisible hand as we understand it in our time. Smith used the phrase invisible hand three times in his, that we have, right? Once in the Theory of Moral Sentiments, once in the invisible hand, once I think in his lectures on astronomy uh, that, that, as you say, were, were published later. And yet, and in, and in those usages, he never – he didn't use the term the way we use it, which it's related, but it's not the same thing. Yet he wrote about the invisible hand. He just didn't call it that, and I think he did it ironically most eloquently in The Theory of Moral Sentiments when he said the following. The all-wise author of nature – and by that he means God – the all-wise author of nature has in this manner taught man – to respect the sentiments and judgments of his brethren, to be more or less pleased when they approve of his conduct, and to be more or less hurt when they disapprove of it. He has made man, if I may say so, the immediate judge of mankind, and has in this respect, as in many others, created him after his own image, and appointed him his vicegerent upon earth to superintend the behavior of his brethren. And so, close quote. So that's you know, that's Smith saying there's this underlying – and of course, it could be genetics, not, not God. It could come from God through genetics. It's all, you, know, you can interpret it any way you want. But here's Smith invoking a natural order of – he's talking about sympathy and norms and the desire to be lovely and loved. That there's this inherent part of our nature that wants to be approved by others and to avoid disapproval. And therefore, we're sort of a self-regulating police force without – the punishments of, of heaven and, and rewards – the punishments of hell and the rewards of heaven. Uh, so I just thought that was a, a piece of Smith that you didn't write about and I think is, to be fair, a – whatever you want to call it, a deist part of Smith and certainly not organized religion per se. But it is a part of Smith that appears to be believing. So sure, and he does throughout the theory of moral sentiments, he does, as you say, invoke this idea of a providential order, and he does generally at least describe the religious impulse in fairly sympathetic terms. He worries about fanaticism and the like, but far more than Hume, he definitely thinks that belief in God, belief in an afterlife have important practical benefits. It provides consolation. As I said, it buttresses morality and so on. On the other hand, I don't think any of his core arguments in the book really ultimately depend on religious premises. I think that, you know, how does morality come about? It comes about through human sentiments. What an impartial spectator is, the the arbiter of moral judgment. So that morality comes from us rather than from the word or will of God. Um, I also think a lot of the passages, not maybe not the one you just read, many of the passages that invoke a providential order are, uh, if you look closely at worded 
evasively or ambiguously or hedged with qualifications. So he's constantly saying, well, we suppose God thinks this, or it seems that God does that. Um, and in many of these, he's focusing less on God than on our beliefs about God. So it's really, I mean, the, the book isn't about God, right? It's about moral theory. It, at bottom, it's a theory of human nature he's putting forward. It's, it's a commentary on our emotional or intellectual needs. Um, I'd also say there's good reason to believe that the book was crafted in large part from his lectures to his students on moral philosophy. And it's just simply expected in 18th century Scotland that professors, especially professors of moral philosophy, would be sufficiently religious. Again, that's why Hume wasn't able to become one. Um, Smith, one of his first actions on arriving at Glasgow was to be asked to be freed from the customary duty of opening each day's class with a prayer, and this request was denied. So he certainly couldn't have given overtly irreligious lectures to his students. I think similar pressures would have kept him from publishing an overtly irreligious book, at least while he remained a professor. And on that note, it's worth also pointing out that the book became less religious over time, that a, a number Later of the revisions yeah. thanks to the book. Yeah, I was going to point that out. Good point. Yeah, and it, I think it's telling that the first kind of softening or tempering of the religious undertones comes in the third edition of 1767, which is the first one that's published after he leaves Glasgow and the religious duties and expectations that came with it. And then the final sixth edition of 1790 is less religious still. So I think there's even, there's some evidence within and, and sort of surrounding the theory of moral sentiments that, I don't know how to put this, it gives us reason to believe that Smith wasn't quite as committed or ardent of a believer as he's often thought to have been. Um, I also, I, I can talk about this if you want. I, I think there are other reasons, the main reasons, frankly, for thinking he was skeptical of most forms of religious belief and religious devotion come from his other works and other things we know about him. Basically, all of the evidence we have about what Smith thought beyond this book points to him being a bit more skeptical than you might think just based on the theory of moral sentiments. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have a horse in the race. I just think, and, and when I, you know, when I read this um when I would read that passage to my students, the, the Christian ones uh, don't like it. it there's, there's nothing Christian about it. And certainly he lived in a Christian time uh, in a Christian society where um, organized religion was much more important, certainly among the intellectual class than it is today. And I, I just find it fascinating to think about his friendship with Hume, which is what much of your book's about, uh, the overtness of 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 Hume's skepticism and the cloaked version of of Smith's, uh, but no matter how you want to put it, it's clear that Smith was not an advocate for organized religion in in any intellectual way. Although we saw some of its benefits and, of course, its costs. Sure, and that of course raises the question of why. If, if Smith Smith's views again, I don't think he was an outright skeptic like Hume. He's in, I call him a skeptical deist. But why was he so much more reticent? on these issues than Hume was. And there's no way to answer this with any certainty a couple centuries later, but that it's easy, I think, to imagine a number of possibilities. So maybe it was just a matter of temperament, right? That he's just temperamentally predisposed to be more circumspect. Um, Maybe he has more concern for kind of his reputation, career, professional success. Maybe he sees religion as just a less important phenomenon than Hume or less dangerous phenomenon than Hume. Uh, Maybe he thinks the dangers of religion would be better combated through quiet neglect rather than open confrontation. Um, I think it's quite likely that he wanted to avoid offending his mother. His mother was a quite pious Presbyterian. He was very close to her, lived with him, lived with her almost his whole life. Um, and maybe it's just he saw what happened to Hume, right? He, he learns a lesson from Hume's 
relative outspokenness. And these, of course, aren't mutually exclusive. I think many of these are, are, are likely true. Let's, let's close with the issue that you don't ex- talk about explicitly, but it emerges from the book very appropriately that it emerges rather than being explicit. But um, I'm reading the book and we have, if I'm correct, we have many more of Hume's letters to Smith than we have of Smith's letters to Hume. Is that correct? correct? Yes. 41 from Hume to Smith, 15 from Smith to Hume. So sometimes we have to infer from the Hume response what Smith might have said and and you talk, you use that, that idea in the book a number of times. One thing I was struck by, and you can't dispute the fact that they were great friends, and you can't dispute the fact that they had um, an incredible amount of respect for each other. But one of the themes that emerges in in Hume's letters is he's constantly begging Smith to uh, move to Edinburgh mm-hmm. when when you know Smith's in Glasgow at a in his professorship, and um, or Smith might be in London, or Smith might be in Europe. And they overlap in in France a little bit, and they overlap in Scotland and London. But they, I think they overlap in London. Is that right? Yes, real briefly. But it crossed my mind that I'm not sure how much time they actually spent together. Right, you added up. It's not uh, it, it, you know, they had a sort of modern friendship through. They didn't have the internet. They had the mail. They had letters. But they kind of sustained this friendship and its intensity uh, at a distance through most of their life, which is – we don't think of that as a, a – we think of that as a modern phenomenon. You know, you go to college, you leave, go off to somewhere, and it's hard to stay in touch with your buddies, but some do and some don't. But you can do it through email, now Facebook. And, and yet here they were in their, with their primitive carriage-delivered letters – Sustaining a friendship with only a limited amount of face-to-face time. Do we have any idea – do you have a rough estimate of how much time they actually saw each other on a regular, ongoing basis? I've never added it up, and it's also partly hard to tell because we don't know – again, the the evidence we have of Smith's day-to-day life is really quite limited. He's a terrible correspondent. He arranged to have all of his papers burned before he died, or almost all of them, and so – you know, what Smith was doing on a day-to-day basis, we, we don't really know. And so one of the questions that I, I kind of speculate about in the book, but that we don't have hard, hard evidence about is when Hume is in Edinburgh and Smith is in Glasgow, which is true for, I don't know, a good decade, quite a long time, how much do they see each other? Yeah. And I think it was probably more that Smith came to Hume rather than vice versa. There's just a lot more going on in Edinburgh at the time. So how often did Smith make the trip? We know he made the trip periodically to go to various clubs that they were part of, uh, almost sort of debating societies. Um, we, there are various stories about, oh, you could get Smith over here on a moment's notice. But it did take uh, early in in Smith's time at Glasgow, it would take a full day to travel by the they improved the road, and it took more like a half day um, by the end of his time in Glasgow. But, it, you know, it's, it's really unclear how often he would make that trip, how often they were together. Similarly, when Smith kind of retires after after going to France, he retires to Kirkaldy to, to work on the Wealth of Nations in Humes and Edinburgh. They would have had to sail across the Firth of Forth to see one another. How often did they do that? We, we don't really know. So in terms of them living in the same city, it's really not much. It might add up to a year or two. Um, in terms of how often did they see each other when they were in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Kirkaldy, you know, it, it kind of in lower Scotland there, um, that's hard to say. But it is, I, it's a good question. I didn't comment on it in the book, so I, I wasn't sure 
what to okay, make of it. Yeah, can't how, really be answered, but right, how the friendship became that deep and that lasting. Um, even at the very beginning of the friendship, they lived on opposite sides of Scotland. They, re- they, they, I think, first met when Smith was giving lectures at Edinburgh, so that there was a few months there. But it really wasn't long after they met until, I think it was, a, it, well, it might have been a year or two before um, before Smith moved to, to Glasgow to start teaching there. Um, but the, you're right, Hume's constantly concocting schemes to try to get Smith. He says, I, I find an apartment for you, you could move here. Or there's an opening at Edinburgh, you could come teach here, and so forth. And then when... Hume, after he goes to to, Paris, to France, he's, he's lionized in Paris beyond belief, and he's trying to decide where to settle, and he's hinting to Smith, well, I'm thinking of settling in Paris, and Smith says, no, please, please, God, don't do that. I, I don't want to stay in Paris. Let's both settle in London. We can go visit together our, our friends in Scotland. We'll go visit together our friends in France, but let's let's live in London. And it just never happened. They, they're constantly trying to figure out ways to live together, but but they never did. I think some of it. You know, this is personality, obviously. I think from your portraits, Hume was a much more social animal, and Smith was a much more, abs- I don't know which, absent-minded. He's famous for being absent-minded. Uh, Tyler Cowen, I think, has hinted that he might have been autistic. Uh, I think he did that on Econ Talk a long time ago. Uh, so it could be he was a little uncomfortable with that level of social – he didn't want to go – out for dinner every night with his friend. Maybe he wanted to be alone more. I don't know. Maybe about loyalty to his mom. Who knows? But it's just striking that Hume is the uh, is always the aggressor, and Smith never. He's not easily uh, caught. Um, the other thought I had is that you, know, you can be friends with someone intellectually like that because through their ideas, right? Someone can influence you in a way way beyond the dinner time and conversational experience through the conversation you have through their books and i always and i use this motif in my book on adam smith uh the motif and adam smith's really kind of my friend uh, certainly george stigler who was a big smith uh fan saw smith as in some dimension uh as as his friend in some sense uh uh i say that because i know that i'm going to tell a this is a strange anecdote i think i've never told it but stigler would say uh that he once had a contest at uh, the University of Chicago, and, and one of the questions was, who was Adam Smith's best friend? And, of course, the answer is David Hume. And yet he, told, he would tell with delight that when he asked his, I think, uh, a grandchild, granddaughter, wh- who was Smith's best friend, she said, you are, <laughs> <laughs> which is very sweet. But uh, what I was going to suggest is that um, – in this modern times we're living in, where where politics are getting uh, are not so attractive, and I sometimes find myself wanting to retreat to the uh, 18th century and go back and hang out with with Mr. Smith. And I wondered if you have any thoughts of having written a, a book. You've written a lot on Smith and Hume and Rousseau and others. Um, do you have that feeling? And what what are your uh, thoughts on that? I, I yeah. I'd love to have conversations with them. I'm not sure I'd like the the standard of living. Is Smith would be quick to point out that you know we have it quite a bit better than they do in, in lots of respects. Hume too, right? Um, but no, absolutely. The the breadth of their thinking, the the influence of their thinking, it would be fascinating. Sure. My guest today has been Dennis Rasmussen. His book is The Infidel and the Professor. Dennis, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was a lot of fun, Russ. Thanks. 
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.